Imagine the scene in a school. The pupils are all taking their end of year exams. The teachers are preparing for the big open day when parents and friends come to visit. Everyone is excited. It's the biggest moment in the school year. Suddenly, the door of the head teacher's office bursts open and in walks a pupil with a few friends behind him. He goes straight to the desk where the secretary is organising a pile of examination scripts and he turns the desk upside down, scattering the scripts all over the room. He proceeds into the head teacher's private room where with a single sweep of his arm he knocks to the floor all the letters and papers, the invitations and arrangements so carefully made for the big day that's coming up. He turns on the astonished onlookers. This whole place is a disgrace, he shouts. It's corrupt from top to bottom. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Before he can get away, the head teacher arrives. What right have you got to behave like this? She asks. You can fail me if you like, replies the pupil. You can throw me out. But I will go to university. I'm going to train as a lawyer. And one day I'll put an end to corruption like this. Your system is finished. Then before they can stop him, he leads. Can we imagine that? I guess some of the elements. But not the whole story. It's too shocking. We've all been to school Things like this are just not allowed to happen and we personally would never dream of acting in such a way. But that was one Bible commentator's attempt at providing an illustration for our passage today. It's helpful for us to try and find modern parallels, but in truth we know nothing can really do justice to what Jesus did in the temple 2,000 years ago. The word shocking does not even begin to cover it. Many of us in this room have been Christians for a long time. Some of us have known this story all of our lives. And the danger is that we become over-familiar with it. For people new to the faith, this story raises all sorts of questions about Jesus and his character. The sight of Jesus brandishing a whip, hurling over tables and causing such a public spectacle is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we are familiar with from the words of Christmas carols. In fact, for some people, just the thought of Jesus being angry goes against everything they supposed about him. It even challenges their views on that emotion within their own lives. Let us remember that Jesus is God. The word made flesh, as John has told us. Every action he made on earth was a divine action. It was what God the Father would do as well. And this means that the cleansing of the temple was not an act of temper. It was not a fit of pique or a wayward tantrum. It was not sin in any way. 
Rather, this shocking act was fully the right thing to do. An act of justice and righteousness. An act that was good and fair. Dare we say an act that was even loving. For the Bible tells us that God is love. You see, anger is not an evil emotion. It's not something to be ashamed of or repented from. Anger is a very human emotion. An emotion that God designed us to feel. It's what we do with it that counts. We are to see here that Jesus used his anger in the correct way. His father watching on would have been pleased, not ashamed. Activists like Martin Luther King have used this story to justify acts of civil disobedience, to encourage Christians to stand up against oppressive regimes. That is, of course, possible, but only when we fully understand what Jesus was really acting against. We need to understand something of the context of the time, otherwise this story becomes quite a dangerous one. We will attempt to explore that in a moment. But first, we need to note something else. If you were here last week, you will have heard the story that immediately precedes this one. It was the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And last week, we discovered that this was not just a miracle done for the sake of it, as if to say, who wouldn't want a nice glass of wine with their meal? No, there was much more to it than that. Through the miracle, Jesus was creating a sign as to what his life, and particularly his death, would achieve. If you remember back to last week, the water was taken out of the jars for the ritual washing of the Jews. Jewish tradition stated that every day people had to ceremonially wash themselves before meals and before entering sacred places, like the temple. This act was a prayer before God, asking him to cleanse them from their sins, to purify their lives from all unrighteousness. And we saw last week that when Jesus turned that water into wine, he was stating that he was bringing something very new. From now on, purification would be made available through him. Wine was a symbol of his blood shed on the cross. From now on, if someone wanted to be cleansed of their sin, they must approach him for forgiveness. And because of the cross, they would receive it. In this act then, Jesus was making a powerful statement. He had come to fulfill the Jewish law. In living the perfect life, he fulfilled all the Jewish traditions. And now he was replacing them with something new. Like the wine in last week's story, he was replacing them with something much, much better. The Old Testament is like a signpost to Jesus. Now that he's here, the people have to focus solely on him. And the reason that that background is important is because John is continuing the same theme. The reason he places this story next in his gospel is because it is also about fulfilment 
and replacement. Jesus is bringing something very new and something much, much better. In this story, Jesus fulfills all the imagery of the Passover and he fulfills all the purposes of the temple. Let me show you how all this works. The very first verse in our reading was this, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now those words mentioning the Passover are very deliberate. Indeed, everything in John's Gospel is placed where it is, very deliberately. John is fascinated by the Passover. He records Jesus going to three different Passover festivals. That's how we know that Jesus' ministry lasted for three years. For John, the Passover is one of the most important ways of understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. I wonder if we can remember the Passover story from the Old Testament. It comes from the time of the Exodus. God's people were enslaved in Egypt and their lives were being made in absolute misery. And from their captivity, the people had cried out to God and God had heard their complaint and he'd been moved by it. So he set about the task of freeing them from their oppressors. He sent Moses to ask Pharaoh nicely, let my people go. Pharaoh refused. He got Moses to perform a few dramatic signs in front of Pharaoh to show him that God meant business. Pharaoh still refused. He wasn't going to let God's people go. He wasn't going to give up his labour force without a fight. So God sent nine plagues on the land. Everything from frogs to flies, blood to boils. There was great devastation, but still Pharaoh would not let the slaves go. Eventually, God was left with only one option. There would be one final great plague. A plague of death on all the firstborn sons in the land. And as God prepared for this terrible judgment to fall, he gave his people some instructions. They were to kill a lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts of their houses. For when the destroying angel saw the blood on the doorpost, it would pass over the house, leaving the firstborn of God's people alive and well. Every house without the blood would find death in the morning. And so it happened. The first Passover took place. The next morning, the land was full of wailing as every family was bereaved. Finally, Pharaoh relented and allowed God's people to go free. The Passover was the story of Israel. The story that defined them as God's rescued people and reminded them of his love. And the Passover festival was celebrated every year so the nation would never forget the freedom that God had won for them. This is the story that for John defines the ministry of Jesus. He's already recorded John the Baptist calling out to his followers, Look, the Lamb of God. Jesus was the one who would be sacrificed and through his blood, 
people would be saved from death. And Jesus' sacrifice would achieve something truly great. It would achieve full redemption. It would set the people free from all that bound them. It would defeat all that oppressed them. And as the gospel goes on, John is going to show us how through the death of Jesus we are set free from the slavery to sin and evil and death, the greatest enemies of the human race. Now we know this, look again at this story. Because what happens in the temple is a Passover story. It is a story of God judging an oppressive regime. It's a story of God rescuing his people. It's a story of God setting people free so they can truly worship him. Why was Jesus so angry about what was taking place in the temple? He was angry because it was preventing ordinary people from getting close to God. The poor just could not afford the sacrifices. The Gentiles couldn't even take up their place at worship because the court of the temple reserved for their use had been turned into a marketplace. In truth, the gift of God's presence and the opportunity for worship had been taken hostage by a corrupt regime of stale religion and money-making. Business had taken holiness prisoner. Money had enslaved prayer. And it was the poor and the vulnerable who suffered the most. That is what makes Jesus so angry. And as we see from the Passover story, God has always been angered when vulnerable people are treated badly. So this is what Jesus is demonstrating against when he forms that whip of cords and he turns over the tables. God is angry that the religious elite are just taking advantage. He is angry that people are being prevented from worshipping him and benefiting from his presence. Jesus was executing God's righteous judgment, just as God had done in Egypt all those years before. And by doing so, he was bringing liberation and freedom and rescue. He was setting people free to offer God the honour that he deserves. Look and listen, John is imploring his readers. Jesus is the new way to freedom, the perfect Passover lamb. Just as his wine, his blood, is the new way to purification. He has fulfilled the old festival and he has replaced it. And now our attention must be on him. So yes, people like Martin Luther King can use this story as justification for protest, but only if they do it with the heart of Jesus. A deep-seated care for the poor and a deep desire for God to get the glory 
that he deserves. This is how we follow Jesus, the new Passover lamb. But there's something else going on here. Another area of the Jewish way of life that was being fulfilled and replaced. When Jesus turned the water into wine last week, he was showing that he was bringing a new way for the cleansing of sin. We're no longer got to be washed by water. We need to be washed in his blood. Now Jesus marches into the temple, the place where all the animals were sacrificed, the place where that sacrificial purification took place, and he cleanses that as well. And the meaning of this act in that context is unmistakable. But by cleansing the temple, by removing all the market tables, he's showing that he's come to fulfill and replace the temple full stop. Indeed, Jesus is the new temple of God on earth. Now, in the first century, the temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It was the center of worship and music and politics and society, national celebration, national mourning. It all took place in the temple. But above all else, the temple was the place where God dwelt. It was the place that God promised to live in the heart of his people. It was the place where heaven and earth touched. And as a result, the temple was the real focal point of the nation. And through this shocking act of cleansing it, Jesus is issuing a shocking message. The temple has now been fulfilled and replaced. He is now the temple of God. He is God dwelling on earth. Through his body, God is in the midst of his people. Through his actions, heaven will come to earth. So if you had sinned, you were no longer to go to the temple and offer an animal as a sacrifice. You were to go to Jesus and trust his sacrifice on the cross. Can you see, this is so important, and it would have been political dynamite at the time. Jesus was now to become the focal point of the nation. Jesus was now the one who determined how people were to live their lives, not just the religious elite who resided in the temple courts. No wonder then Jesus was asked, what authority could he possibly have to make a statement like this. For everyone of that day knew only God could make a pronouncement like that. Well, quite. Listen again to what Jesus said in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, only God could say that the work of the old temple was over and a new temple 
was now here. And Jesus' reply gives the solid evidence that he himself was indeed God. Everything in the Christian faith stands or falls by the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus had not been raised three days after his death, all he would have been was a crazy man running off at the mouth, causing trouble in public places. But because Jesus was raised, it was proved that he was truly God. He was Lord and Saviour. He was liberator and judge. He was the new temple on earth. Can you see how John is layering all this significance into his gospel? All the way through as he tells these stories, he's trying to help us understand them. What's really interesting is that John also wrote Revelation. And as he described the vision that God gave him of God's eternal kingdom right at the end of the book, we read these words in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now listen to this. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Do you see? It's everything this story is pointing towards. Jesus is now the way for us to be purified from our sin. Jesus is the Passover Lamb that sets us free from all that oppresses us. And Jesus is the temple that we go to when we seek God's presence. He has fulfilled and replaced the old and brought something wonderfully new and something so much better. We don't go to a building anymore. We go to a person, a person who loves us. All our attention and glory now goes to him. And that leads us then to one final question. I appreciate that what's been said so far at times has been a little bit complicated. You needed to know a lot of the Old Testament to really get it. But this final question is very simple. The question is, what does this all mean for us today? To answer that, we just need to look briefly at the challenging words that finished our reading. Verse 23 onwards. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus has just cleansed the temple because he knew that the activity there was fake and hollow. In fact, it enslaved others rather than helping them. Jesus has been angered by the fact that those people who should have known better were refusing to give God the honour that he was due. And this passage then tells us that Jesus looks at each one of us and he knows. He knows what's really going on in here. He knows 
what our motives are. He knows how we're treating other people. He knows whether we're really giving God the honour that he deserves. He knows. He sees through all our pretense. He knows what is in each person. So surely that must be a call for us to bring our confession before him, seeking the forgiveness of the Lamb and the cleansing of his blood. Surely that must be a call to take a whip of our own and clear out the clutter from our hearts to make more space for worship. From now on, let's make Jesus our focal point and zealously give him the honour that he is due.